Right now on Matter of Fact, all eyes are on the Palmetto State. How the tight race between Lindsey Graham and Jamie Harrison could transform politics in South Carolina and throughout the country. It's the emergence of what I call the New South, a New South that is bold, that is inclusive, that is diverse. Plus, 45 years ago, the fight over school segregation tore apart this Louisville neighborhood. Today, a billion-dollar redevelopment project plans to rebuild it. Can it work? And Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt on a topic many people are uncomfortable with, unconscious bias. That association between blackness and crime makes its way into all of our minds. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. Today, a look at the pivotal role South Carolina plays in presidential politics. Earlier this year, we visited the state and spoke to College of Charleston professors H. Gibb Knotts and Jordan Ragusa, co-authors of First in the South, Why South Carolina's Presidential Primary Matters. Who do you guys think will win it in, from the Democratic side? I'd be very surprised if Biden doesn't win the South Carolina primary. And that could be, you know, enough to get the momentum to be able to get the nomination. Both men accurately predicted Joe Biden would win the state's primary and also his party's nomination. But neither Gibbs nor Ragusa could have predicted just how close the race would be between Lindsey Graham and Jamie Harrison, who are now virtually deadlocked with a little more than two weeks till Election Day. We've spoken with Senator Graham in the past to get his comments on policy and politics, but we've never had the opportunity to speak with Jamie Harrison until now. Jamie Harrison, it's so nice to talk to you. I think for people who in, are in the North, like me, you know, we had this sort of vision of the South, and sometimes I, maybe it's not an accurate vision. But has the South changed when it comes to race relations? You know, I, one of the things that I've, I've had on this uh, in this race, and I've talked about this for a long time, is it's the emergence of what I call the New South, uh, a New South that is bold, that is inclusive, that is diverse. Now, you think you take a look at the seat that I am actually vying for right now. This was the seat of John C. Calhoun. It was the seat of Strom Thurmond. It was the seat of a man called Ben Pitchfork Tillman. And Ben Tillman was governor of South Carolina, but he was a United States senator who would go to the floor of the U.S. Senate and talk about the joys of lynching the black folks. This was the first state to secede from the Union because of the issue of slavery. But we have the, the opportunity here in this election to also become the very first state to have two African-American senators serving at the very same time. And so I believe that, uh, you know, we are at a crossroads. And the question is, do we stay in the old South or do we move forward boldly uh, and walk into the light of the new South? And I, I have hope that we're going to choose uh, the new South. The judge, Amy uh, Coney Barrett, is moving through the Senate now, and uh, there's really not much that Democrats can do to stop it. So let's move past, is there going to be a vote? Um, how would you vote on her, her nomination and why? Well, I'm still listening to, to the testimonies um, and would love to hear more for, from her in terms of what are the settled law, particularly as it relates to civil rights in this country. Uh, whether Brown versus Board is good law and settled law. Um, uh, some of the other issues that, 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 that you know, women's rights and Roe versus Wade, uh, you know, uh, the LGBT community in terms of marriage equality. I do not believe that we need to roll back the civil rights 
of folks uh, in this country. Uh, you know, we need to live up to those words that Thomas Jefferson said, that he said, all men, I say all people are created equal. And I believe as a country, we have pro been progressing towards that goal line. And I say, and I believe any retreat to that is dangerous and we can't allow that. But I would love to hear more concrete uh, where she stands on those issues. We hear Democratic candidates often say, listen, the ACA isn't perfect. How would you improve the ACA? What would you do to fix it? Well, one of the things is I, uh, there, there are a few holes in the ACA. One, uh, mental health, dental health, and vision are, are, are fairly weakened in the program. And I would love to see us make those much more robust. One of the things that we saw as a result of the coronavirus is that when you lose your job, many of us also lose our health insurance. So the question is, what happens next? Where do you go then to make sure you're covered? And so I wanna make sure that this is a good alternative for folks if they don't have employer-based healthcare. The election, you know, like there's a massive divide, which we all know. Let's say you're elected. How, how do you go about healing that divide? What's step number one, two, and three? It's time for good people to stand up in this country. And just to say enough is enough. That's why we need folks to go out and vote. Demonstrate, reject this type of behavior, reject this type of uh, environment in our country. Uh, and I think that's a very first step. And then the second step is to, to find folks of goodwill and try to work with them to move things forward. Jamie Harrison, so nice to talk to you. Thank you for your time, appreciate it. Thank you so much, Soto Dad. It's good seeing you. Likewise. We extended an invitation to Senator Graham, but he declined. Next on Matter of Fact, how dynamite and death led to one of the highest symbols of peace in the world. Plus, WFH, Zoom Bomb, Quarantini? How many pandemic words have you added to your vocabulary? But first, riots erupted when the US Supreme Court forced this city to integrate its schools. The long shadow that decision still casts, decades later. Welcome back, everybody. For nearly two years, Matter of Fact has been reporting in Louisville, Kentucky, to follow one of the nation's most ambitious urban renewal plans. With a price tag of nearly a billion dollars, the project is set to transform the city's West End. But the cost isn't what makes the plan ambitious, it's the goal, to build up the neighborhood without pushing out the people who've always lived there. That's something that happens once new housing and shops and services pop up in revitalized communities. In this installment of Russell Rising, we take a look at the role public schools play in renewal plans. 12-year-old Aaliyah Neighbors lives in Louisville's West End and attended her local elementary school. It did not go well. It was very rough. Teachers didn't care, and they would just let stuff happen. They wasn't teaching us nothing for real. We didn't go on many field trips either. There were other problems, especially around reading, according to Aaliyah's mother, Sharon Wyatt. You know, she just wouldn't catch it on to it. They tried to pull her out of class, but it was like, they were so overwhelmed, it, did, it fell through. They couldn't do the one-on-one that she kind of needed. They would pass on to the next grade, but she wasn't really learning anything. On the West End, it's not uncommon. 
As long as we've had standardized tests in this city, the results have shown that our children in the west side of Louisville or black children throughout the city have not done as well. Michelle Penix was a public school principal in Louisville for 22 years. I think on the west side, the reason they're lagging behind because there hasn't been a true commitment from Jefferson County Public Schools to support them with the resources they need to be successful. How the West End got this way goes back nearly 50 years to the start of Louisville's battles over school desegregation. In 1975, white residents here reacted with fury to a plan to integrate schools through mandatory busing. They failed to stop it, but did manage to change it in ways that would have unforeseen consequences on the West End for decades to come. It was black students who were going to be bused and not the white students who'd be bused into West Louisville. The burden of diversity has only been on black students, mostly. Marty Polio is the superintendent of schools. And about 95% of our students who are bused are black students, predominantly from West Louisville which has led to the school district not investing in that specific area of town. Busing black students led to a steep drop in enrollment in schools on the West End. Several school buildings, like this one, were converted into apartments. Among the few schools that stayed open was Shawnee Academy, where Superintendent Marty Polio got his start in teaching. I knew there was a floor right above my classroom, but I didn't know what was up there. I was a first year teacher and I asked what was up there. This was in 1997. Because of declining enrollment at Shawnee, he said the district shut that floor down 16 years ago. Today, Shawnee is undergoing a $40 million renovation, part of a sweeping plan to undo the structural damages caused by busing. We believe we're gonna build two middle schools, a high school, and fix the academy at Shawnee at the cost of about $250 million. Kim Rice is Shawnee's principal. Let's go and look at this classroom. On the new third floor, high schoolers will get a start on their careers. We'll have our aviation classroom, a part for our manufacturing classroom, a part for our interactive media classroom. To get more West End students to enroll, the district wants to relax busing and give students more options closer to home. After a rough start in a West End school, Aaliyah Neighbors was reassigned elsewhere. Now she's bused to Crosby Middle School in a predominantly white suburb, a 30-minute ride from her home. Her mother, Sharon Wyatt. Oh, she loves it, and they're very attentive to what she needs. They actually had like a tutor that, that comes to the class. They don't take her out of the class. She loves school now. It's a totally different little girl. Brothers Mershon and Marcellus Malone also prefer busing, each riding to schools 30 minutes from their home. My school that I go to in the East, it gives more opportunity, and there's more clubs, and there's more resources for kids to have than at another school that is in the West. And how about for you, Marcellus? I'd rather go to the school that I'm at because I feel like my school is worth the 20, 30 minute wait on the bus. One day, more children in the West End may opt for schools closer to home. That's the long-term goal. But West Louisville doesn't really have enough schools to be like a real choice, right? At this time, absolutely not. What we have to do is invest if I could, I wish we could make it happen overnight, but instead what we have to do is do the hard work to make that change. Coming up, why this doctor says don't teach children to be colorblind.
when you encourage children to not think about race, you, you also encourage them to not be aware of the discrimination uh, that, that comes from color. Plus, he was once dubbed the angel of death, but now has a lasting legacy of peace. Have you ever stopped to think about how your brain is wired? Well, the brain categorizes people and experiences as a way of organizing our thought processes. Those categories form both conscious and unconscious bias. As part of the Matter of Fact listening tour, we're exploring the impact of bias. I talked with Stanford University professor Jennifer Eberhardt, the author of the book Biased, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice that Shapes What We See, Think, and Do. Jennifer Eberhardt, so nice to see you. Uh, your book is called Bias. You're the winner of a MacArthur uh, Genius Grant. Um, and you focus a lot on bias and the brain. Are we just wired to be biased? Well, uh, bias is in part a function, you know, of how our brains are wired. And so the, the idea is that to deal with all the information that we're bombarded with, you know, every fraction of a second, right? Our, our brains are uh, chunking things into categories. Now, we also categorize people, right? We categorize people into social groups. And then once we've ha had them categorized, we form beliefs and attitudes, you know, about individuals. And those beliefs and attitudes or what we call bias. So who is criminal and who's safe? Who's guilty and who's innocent? Who's powerful and who's weak? You know, who's deserving and who's undeserving? Um, so, so our society is actually playing a role here. It's not just all inside. It's, it's what we're taking from outside and how we're making sense of it. You tell a story about your son, who's five years old, and I think you guys were on a, a plane together. Can I ask you to repeat that story? My son was just really excited about being on this airplane with mommy. He's like looking all around and he's checking everybody out and he sees this man and he says, hey, that guy looks like daddy. And so I look at the man and he doesn't look anything at all like my husband, like nothing at all, right? So I start to look around on the plane and I realize that this man was the only black man on the plane. And I thought, all right, right? I'm gonna have to have a little talk with my son about how not all black people look alike. <laughs> but before I could say anything, my son, he looks up at me and he says, I hope that man doesn't rob the plane. And I said, what? What did you say? And, and he said it again. He says, well, I, I hope he doesn't rob the plane. And I said, well, you know, daddy wouldn't rob a plane. And he said, yeah, yeah, I know. And I said, well, why would you say that? And he looked at me with this really sad face. And he said, I don't know why I said that. I don't know why I was thinking that. That association between blackness and crime made its way into the mind of my five-year-old and it makes its way into all of our minds. What's at work that you're trying to highlight in that story for the rest of us? Well, I mean, one thing that's at work is to realize how, um, you know, young we receive these messages from outside, from the world, uh, but it's also us, right? Children learn 
from us. They're looking at us. They're looking at our reactions to determine how to regard other people and, and how they're regarded by society. Jennifer, is it possible for parents to train their children to not operate from those biases? We know from the research that um, when you encourage children to not think about race, you, you also encourage them to, to, to not be aware of the discrimination uh, that, that comes from color. Just because we're not talking to our kids about race doesn't mean that they're not absorbing all the stuff that we're absorbing in the world. And the worst thing we can do is to leave them on their own to figure it out. Jennifer Everhart, so nice to talk to you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. To learn more about bias and its impact on our lives, go to matteroffact.tv and watch our recent special, The Hard Truth About Bias, which includes guests like Oscar winner John Ridley, comedian Trey Crowder, former NBA player Atan Thomas, and a social experience where total strangers meet to discuss confrontations that went viral. Coming up. Remember when an elbow bump was just an injury? Will COVID-19 change the way we talk to each other? For good. But first, how one organization is meeting the needs of a global food shortage, one meal at a time. Now to a weekly feature we like to call We're Paying Attention Even If You're Too Busy. The work of the United Nations World Food Program, the world's largest organization addressing food insecurity, won a coveted award this week, the 2020 Nobel Peace Prize. Matter of fact, chronicled their relief efforts with our reporting about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the global food chain and the challenges for refugees trying to assist their home countries. News of the award made us curious about how the Nobel Peace Prize came to be. Alfred Nobel, whose name is synonymous with the Peace Prize, was once known as the Angel of Death. Nobel, a 19th century Swedish chemist, worked on creating explosives. In 1864, one of his nitroglycerin factories exploded, killing one of his brothers. He continued his research and eventually created dynamite. In an effort to recreate his legacy, Nobel's will set up a fund to award monetary prizes for, quote, the best work for fraternity among nations. The first Nobel Peace Prize was awarded in 1901. Still ahead on Matter of Fact, PPE, WFH, and hand hygiene. Why the language of a lockdown could stick with us for a while. Finally, the pandemic has changed how we work, go to school, shop, and even how we talk. The authors of the Oxford English Dictionary said the impact of COVID-19 on our language is an ongoing story, and they've added new words and even new definitions to the dictionary. For example, social distancing was previously defined as being aloof and deliberately distancing yourself. Well, now there's a definition to describe maintaining a specific physical distance from other people, preferably more than six feet. And when first added back in 1981, elbow bump was just an injury. Well, now it also describes when two people lightly tap elbows as a greeting instead of shaking hands. WFH, or working from home, PPE, personal protective equipment, have also been updated. The next dictionary announcement comes out in December, and maybe then we'll see additions like quarantini or Zoom fatigue. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien and I'll see you back here next week.